the we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pound. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. Kevin is a retired United States Army Lieutenant Colonel who has studied UFOs for more than 50 years. His military training has provided him with unique insight into military operations and UFO research. Kevin has investigated many of the most mysterious cases and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries and been interviewed on hundreds of radio and television programs about UFOs. Considered to be one of the leading experts on the Roswell UFO crash, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs including Roswell in the 21st Century and Encounter in the Desert, a re-examination of the Socorro UFO landing. Now here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I am, in fact, Kevin Randall. I'm going to be joined by John Greenwald. For those of you who do not know, and I'm sure there's many who really do know this, uh, starting at the age of 15, John Greenwald Jr. was struck with curiosity that led off to a lifelong journey. First researching the UFO phenomenon, Greenwald began utilizing the Freedom of Information Act, FOIA, to hammer the United States government for answers, and he targeted every government agency to get them. As he waited for answers on this niche of the paranormal, he then branched off into investigate nearly every government secret imaginable. He was a sophomore in high school when he first started his trek in 1996, and he achieved or archived all his research on the website that became known as the Black Vault. I'm just laughing. A, a, a sophomore in high school in 1996. <laughs> I mean, I was a high school sophomore like 30 years before that. It just kills me to say that. Anyway, I'm moving on here. Today, he has amassed well over 2 million pages of declassified records. His efforts throughout decades of research have been responsible for getting hundreds of thousands of pages that have never been seen the never seen the light of day into the public domain. He has appeared on numerous television and radio programs, most importantly, a different perspective. Just thought I'd throw that in. And is frequently sourced at, in various news articles and stories for his archive and discoveries. John Greenwald, even though I kind of botched the introduction, uh, welcome to A Different Perspective. I appreciate that. It's good to be back with you. Uh, before we get into what I really wanted to talk about, I'm going to ambush you with a question. Sure. And, and of course, it deals with Jan Harzon and MUFON. Um, what was your reaction? I'll be honest with you. Just like everyone else, I was shocked. You know, I mean, you're going to have a small group of people that go, oh, I'm not, I wasn't surprised, uh, X, Y, Z, and they'd throw in their two cents. But come on, at the end of the day, I think we were all surprised. That was not something I expected. I took a quadruple take when uh, it popped up in my social media feeds thinking there is no way that that is real. Uh, and obviously it took two seconds to figure it out that it was. So uh, plain and simple, long-winded way of saying I was just shocked. I, I really was. I didn't, I did not expect it. That was my reaction as well. I thought it's a hoax. It's yeah. not true. I've, I've seen these smears launched at people throughout the UFO community for years and years and years. And I, I mean, I've been, the butt of many of these these smears. My favorite 
was that I had worked with Hector Quintanilla on Project Blue Book. And I'm thinking back um, in 1967, God, I don't want to say that, 1967, when I graduated from high school, I went immediately into the Army, spent four years on active duty in the Army. There was no possible way I could have ever been associated with Project Blue Book. I mean, yet that was something that was circulated for years that I had been working so I understood understood the shock. I was shocked and somewhat dismayed. Do you have a prediction about what this might mean for MUFON in the future? I really don't. Uh, just being, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a, a um, member uh, per se. I, I was gifted a lifetime membership uh, because I had volunteered for about a decade for them to emcee their international symposium. Uh, but rather, I, I still don't speak as like even a, a member uh, what I say is kind of from the outskirts, and I wish them all the best as an organization. You know, the with, with any organization that is run primarily by volunteers, and even those that, that pull a salary, you're going to have the bad apples. You're going to have the ones that shouldn't be involved. You're going to have the surprises uh, of people that uh, you learn years later that shouldn't be involved. But the core and the root of what MUFON is all about is, uh, and, and I, I speak as someone who has known John Schusler for years and uh, known uh, Walt Andrus before he passed away for many, many years. You know, I, I know that deep down those guys have the absolute best intention when they founded that organization. And sadly, you know, you're just going to have in an organization of thousands of people, those bad apples. So I, I do wish them the best. I hope that uh, again, in the bigger picture, it's not their end. I know some people are theorizing that. I don't wish that on them. There's a lot of great people that invest a lot of their time and a lot of their money into an effort that I agree with. And so as, uh, again, I consider myself an outsider uh, looking in, I feel that they're a part of this bigger global effort to investigate uh, this phenomena. And I do hope that they can make the proper changes that they need to, to, to make and move on and really focus on those um, large numbers of people involved that really do have their heart in the right place. Well, I will say one thing. I, too, am not a member of MUFON and never have been. And the reason I've never joined, <clears throat> excuse me, is my good friend Carl Lorenzen, who was the head of April, And in the uh, late 1960s, Walt Andrus, who was a member of APRO, wanted to organize the field investigators in the Midwest so that, uh, I guess, prevent duplication of effort and kind of coordinate where the investigations were going. Mm -hmm. He then split off from APRO, taking some of those people with him. So the, the genesis of MUFON was really a defection from APRO by Walt Andrus, and I've always, always felt sort of a resentment toward Walt Andrus and APRO, uh, not APRO, but MUFON for that very reason, and I never joined. I have been to a number of the uh, symposium, as you well know. Yeah. And uh, and I think that my contributions have always been a little bit more on the skeptical side, suggesting things about alien abduction, for example, that uh, mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of people wanted to hear, but I thought was important to point out. I will also say that when we were having the trouble with Stan Friedman over the Roswell case, and he was publishing a lot of things that were not true, and, and the MUFON Journal was publishing those things, Dennis Stacy always gave me 
or Don Schmidt and me, the opportunity to respond in kind. And I always appreciated that from Dennis Stacy and thought we got a fair play in the uh, MUFON journal when, when Dennis Stacy was, was the editor. Mm-hmm. So I always kind of appreciated that. So my, my um, interaction, I guess, with MUFON has always been somewhat adversarial. Yeah, and I go going back to the original days too. I mean, obviously you're gonna you're gonna have that. You have a lot of essentially cooks in the kitchen that are gonna want to bake that pie a little bit differently. And fast forwarding through the years, you actually have that with Mufon as well, where people it did disagreed with Mufon as an organization and broke off and created their own. A prime example is right here in my home in Los Angeles, where. Uh, MUFON Los Angeles uh, had broken away. I don't know all the details, and I'm not going to pretend I do, uh, but what I do know is that they broke away and created a different organization not affiliated uh, with MUFON, but I I, I think that it was a nice enough relationship where, uh, from what I understand, they would share speakers, because a lot of times uh, I would lecture for both like MUFON Orange County and uh, what used to be MUFON Los Angeles. So they would kind of piggyback bringing in a speaker, whether it be from the East Coast or or here locally and so on. So you're going to have that a lot, I think, where, where uh, again, people are so passionate about this. And uh, I go back to the too many cooks in a kitchen analogy that they just have their certain vision. And when a organization doesn't uh, really align with that. They break off and form their own, and and we'll see it. You know, we'll see it again and again. I'm I'm sure. I was a little disappointed as they moved toward the new age. Uh, at one point, I know Walt Andrus had said they needed to expand the uh, membership base and thought bringing in new age people would be be helpful to the organization. And I always always thought that might not have been the best move to have made. And then, of course, the symposium where they were doing the. Um, Secret Space Program and brought in some speakers who were clearly yeah um, not reliable. Yeah, one hundred percent on board with you there. That was when they and I'm uh, I hope you don't mind me saying the names, but that was when they brought in like people like Corey Good, who really have in my book very low to zero credibility. Uh, not to be too harsh, but just really kind of no credibility. So yeah, that was actually after I had. Um, I uh, emceed for them for quite a few years, and I was very surprised to see that on the roster uh, when they started doing that. And that that was discouraging. It really was. I'll, I'll fully admit that I, I am glad that I wasn't emceeing at the time. There was no connection to me not doing it. It, it just, uh, I think that they um, knew that I had done it for a long time, and I didn't expect to do it indefinitely. And so they started having other MCs or rotating people that would introduce the speakers. But yeah, that one stuck out to me. That Secret Space Program one, uh, I, I'm shocked. I, I'm not sure who made the call on that. Uh, but that does tie into where I'm saying that they need to make the proper changes, not only with maybe vetting their upper echelon a little bit, uh, but on top of that, the the direction. Because I, I agree with the new agey stuff. That shouldn't be involved in a scientific uh, based organization uh, that's, in my mind, should be focusing more on nuts and bolts. But um, let's let's take a quick break here because mm-hmm. really I have to. Uh, my blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, and of course John's is www.theblackvault.com. The black vault being one word, all lowercase. So you can take a look at his two million two million pages of documents there, and see what all has been hidden from us over the years by the by the government about UFOs. And uh, I also want to thank all those who bought a copy of uh, the Best of Project Blue Book, which has been up and down on the Amazon bestseller list. And I always say, please. 
write a, write a review because that stuff really kind of helps. We will be back right after this with John Greenwald and we will talk be talking UFOs and uh, some other activities. So please stick around. by John Greenwald. We're talking UFOs and we were kind of talking about MUFON. We'll get on to the real purpose here in just a moment. But as we went away, we were kind of talking about the symposium where they were talking about the secret space program. And I did talk to Jan Harzon about that um, at one point. Um, and I think we, we exported it on this program, as a matter of fact. And it was his idea that he wanted to give the membership an opportunity to hear these speakers and decide for themselves whether or not they wanted to believe them. I always thought it was more of a move to put, um, to bring people into the uh, MUFON symposium that otherwise might not have been there because they would want to hear these people tell their incredible stories. And I'm not sure that was a, I, I can understand from a corporate point of view wanting to do that, but I'm not sure that a scientific organization would really want to do that. What do you think, John? It's a tough one because being a nonprofit and and in this day and age, you have to struggle to survive. You really do. I mean, it's it's not like money is pouring into organizations like MUFON. So you have to you have to find that that fine balance between that scientific core of what I feel you and I 100 percent align on and, and agree on that that should be what this is all about. But sadly, to the to the crowd in this day and age, and I know this is going to uh, tie into uh, really what what the brunt of the conversation is going to be today with you. Um, people like the sensational, and when people like the sensational, you get bodies in the seats uh, and you get a crowd. And so, for that nonprofit organization, I'm not just picking on Mufon. This is true on uh, quite a few different things. You have to uh, find that balance where you're going to bring people in and maybe uh, stretch on that scientific uh, core that you have, stretch a little bit so you can make the money to survive. So I don't want to defend it, but I don't want to you know, taunt it that much either just simply because I get it. I don't agree with it in a perfect world. you know, They would have a lot of money. They would be run by perfect people. And uh, they would only stick with the core science, which I feel is the most important. But sadly, we live far from a perfect world. I'm reminded back when you were a sophomore in high school, <laughs> about that time frame, the middle of the 1990s, I was invited to a um, conference in Mesa, Arizona. And uh, Harley Bird, I don't know if you know who Harley Bird is. I don't. Uh, he, he was at one time claiming to be the nephew of Admiral Byrd, and later he promoted himself to grandson. Um, really a weird guy. Uh, Russ Estes interviewed him, uh, and I, I've seen the videotape, and it's hilarious. He did a tape called um, Messengers of Deception, and Harley Byrd was the, the guest. Showed up with a medal around his neck, which uh, he claimed had been given to him by the military for his work in Korea during the Korean War, turned out it was a golf medal, had all these weird ideas going on. Point is this, I was at this conference and one of the reporters there asked me, how do you share a venue with a guy like that? Yeah. 
And my answer was, A, I didn't know he was going to be there, but B, I certainly don't support him. And so we, I understand running into that dichotomy. You know, you want to bring in people that will fill the seats, but on the same token, I think that conference was organized by, um, by, by, a, by a group that wasn't claiming to be scientifically oriented, just interested in UFOs and the paranormal and new age stuff. But the mission of MUFON was supposedly scientific investigation of this, and they seemed under the tutorship of of, of um, Harzog to have moved into a more, this is a corporate world, how can we increase our revenue streams as yeah. opposed to let's follow the scientific method. Yeah, I don't know 100% that's definitively what it was, but I would absolutely bet money that is what it was, that he, he was very, other than the controversy, but... Uh, he was a very business-minded individual. I mean, I, I had met Jan probably first time, gosh, maybe 15 years ago, well before he was actually a, a international director. He was part of the MUFON organization in Colorado where the symposium used to take place uh, every year. And so I had met a lot of the people that were involved there. And at the time, he was, um, uh, you know, part of that uh, part part of that local chapter, but not known on a on a national scale. But uh, I think that that was really his strong suit was that he was able to understand what they needed to do financially. So, again, not defending the action, but I would bet money that is what he wanted to do, rely less on the quality of the information and rely more on the quantity of people that were going to come in and, and pay those uh, those ticket fees. Well, let's uh, let's move on from MUFON because um, I don't expect to be invited to any more symposium now. <laughs> Be that as it may, what inspired me here was um, Eric Davis, Dr. Eric Davis resurfaced. He was the guy who claimed to have met with Admiral, I guess, Tom Wilson, yeah. had this conversation about UFOs and the secret government investigations and all of that. It, it blossomed a couple of years ago and it just popped up again. Uh, and I did a, a column posting on my blog, and I'll use, I'll say a name again, uh, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com about this. Um, somebody had sent me a comment that you had posted an analysis of the um, document that, that Davis had created, uh, the letters, the, his notes of this meeting. What was your, what was your take on, on that meeting and the, that document? Sure. Yeah. My, my take was when I first saw it, uh, you know, as as you and I both know, there's a lot of documents, quote unquote, documents that come around over the years. And this was yet another one that leaked out into the UFO community. So I never take kindly to that scenario because I've seen so many stories begin that way and they generally don't end well. So when this came across my desk, I, you know, I did. I don't approach things biased where I go, OK, this is a hoax. I'm going to prove it. I'll look at it and, and, and I'll try and, and, and give it the benefit of the doubt that maybe it's legit. But when you look at the notes, uh, to me, I, I honestly stayed away from it for for quite some time, probably close to a year. And a lot of people kept asking me uh, during radio interviews, during Q&A and call ins and stuff, and even on my own show. And I do a live broadcast on my YouTube channel a lot where people call in and, and ask questions. And I kept getting asked and I said, OK, I'll sit down. I'll really go into it and dissect it, the history and so on, because if I dive into something like that, I really try and leave no corner unturned and no stone unturned and 
really just dissect everything. So to go back to your question, uh, when I started doing that and creating a online presentation to just kind of give the backstory and the root story and and what can you find and 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 attempt to authenticate uh, this with, I it struck me going through it that it had resembled a television or movie script scene. And what I mean by that is when you create a script, I worked in television for quite a long time and, and wrote quite a few of these for History Channel and Discovery Channel, uh, including fictionalized accounts because we did a lot of recreations. And when you do that, you got to create a script. You got to set the scene. Uh, you got to name your characters. You got to have dialogue and so on and so forth. And I didn't initially think that, but as I was really kind of dissecting every letter of this thing, I realized that is exactly what it looks like. And reading through it, now now I want to preface this by saying it's very amateurish, uh, meaning like to me, as someone who has worked in a uh, what's called a supervising producer role, you get a lot of people in television that want to write. And what they do is they take stabs at writing a scene or what they call an act, and they'll give it to you as a supervisor just to kind of vet for them. Uh, they want to hone in on, on their skills, and obviously, as a supervising producer, I was writing the episodes. So they're just trying to get feedback from you and, and pick your brain. That happens a lot in television. It's how you move forward, and it's how you move up. And so this looked to me like, a, like something I would get from somebody who's never written before, but was hired in as a consultant and took a stab at writing a scene. And as silly as that sounds, what I did in, in the video presentation was I have a script, an original script from the movie Groundhog Day. And it was around the, the same time frame, like 1990s or so. And I broke down one of the scenes in this original script that was given to all the actors and showed how it was set up, scene set up, um, and again, that character dialogue. And I juxtaposed that with the Wilson Davis notes. And to me, you find a lot of correlations. And so at the at the end, what I say is I'm not 100% sold that this is you know part of a fictionalized script. But what I am saying is it has a lot of signs and, and signatures of one. And to me, that is a very perfectly plausible scenario on explaining what these notes are, taking real names, potentially even you know real events or building off of it, and creating something around it, uh, but fiction. And that to me is a very plausible scenario. And yet people call me crazy for thinking such a thing. And rather they'll say, no, this had to have happened. And their only evidence is Wilson denied it ever happened. So only in ufology, when you deny something happened, does that mean that it actually happened? And it's a very kind of twisted way uh, that part of the UFO community operates. Um, but I, uh, just to kind of close the thought, I, I did this video presentation and, uh, at the end, you know, had proposed this theory as a very plausible working theory that this is a fictionalized account. And, um, and what I also did was showed in, in, uh, this time frame in 2002, when allegedly, if that date is, is to be uh, believed, what was on television? And X-Files was ending that very year, the first rendition of it, that let very me, year. Let me, break, let me break in here. Sure. Because we're going to have to take a short break. Yeah, I no did, problem. I did want to say that there are some other fine programs about the paranormal on the X-Zone Broadcast Network. Take a look at xzbn.net. 
And uh, I'm sure you'll find something that will interest you. I'll be back with uh, John Greenwald in just a moment, and we will continue his thoughts on the X-Zone and Eric Davis. So please stick around. strikes me that every time we get the conversation going good, going well, we have to break off. I'm with John Greenwald. We were talking about uh, Eric Davis and his notes about his meeting with uh, Admiral Wilson and the resemblance to a TV script. And uh, when when we left, John, you were saying that it was about the time X-Zone, X-Zone, <laughs> the X-Files was ending. Um that's so right. Carry on from that point. <laughs> yeah, no. Earlier in that year, again, if that date is to be believed, uh, and and there's some supporting evidence that this was, uh, if it was written, uh, likely was around that time frame. With uh, again tying back to some other historical points, which we can get into. But uh, that being said, I operated that that part was that date uh, in 2002 was when it was written. X Files was coming to an end uh, earlier that year. And what I also did was researched other paranormal programs that were on at the time, uh, one of which was called uh, um, uh, Factor Fiction that was uh, uh, hosted by Jonathan Frakes uh, from Star Trek, the Star Trek fame. And the, the, I'm not saying that this was tied into that show, but what I'm saying is what's popular and, uh, at this time frame. And that show premiered about a month or two within the, the, the uh, notes were, again, allegedly written. And the premise of this show was they would they would tell five paranormal based stories within an episode. Only some of them were real. The majority of them were fictionalized. And it was up to you as the viewer to figure out which were fact or fiction. And that was really kind of what was popular at the time. Now, again, working in television for quite a long time, this is something that I call uh, the the what what we called in television the next dog the bounty hunter, and the next dog the bounty hunter what that was was a tie in to the reality show dog the bounty hunter, and the immense popularity behind that, and it caught everybody in the industry by surprise on how well that show did, and what I mean by quote unquote the next dog the bounty hunter was every executive it didn't matter if it was A and E or history or. Uh, Discovery Channel. It was essentially at that time frame. They were looking for the next dog, the bounty hunter. And that's how I tied this in. That if you look at what's on television and what was being fictionalized, this really did coincide with that from not only a visual aspect that it looked like a script, but also would make sense that a show would take real elements like that fact or fiction show, real elements from real life with real people and then put that into a show. And again, that's not a stretch. That was actually on television at the time that these things were written. So I had proposed that theory, and of course it was just highly controversial, but I stand by that that's a plausible uh, working theory. Now, a lot of people said, well, why would, why would Eric Davis uh, make a television script and this and that? And this then paves the way to um, a lot of assumptions that people are making. I never said Eric Davis wrote it. 
So you have to you have to think out of the box when you look at stuff like this, because who said he wrote it? He's never admitted it. I've written him multiple times and I'll I'll say uh, I get read receipts. So I know he got my emails, but he never responds. I don't think he cares for me too much, but he has he has given no comments. And that's as far as he'll go. Well, let me say this. I when his I, I first learned about him, after, I guess, after he appeared on Coast to Coast or one of those shows, and he was talking about real UFO crashes. And he was giving a list of some that he thought that he believed were authentic or he knew were authentic. And one of them was the Del Rio crash. Mm-hmm. And this is the one that sent me spinning out of control because I'm very familiar with that. It all comes down to a single witness, Robert Willingham, who claimed to be an Air Force fighter pilot, an Air Force retired Air Force colonel. He was neither a fighter pilot nor a colonel. His military career spanned 13 months, and he ended up as an E-4, a very low-ranking enlisted soldier. Um, he was in the military from December of 1945 through, I think, January of 1947, 13 months, um, and claimed claimed to be a veteran of World War II. Well, he joined the Army after the shooting had stopped, but the war was not declared over until 1940, the middle of 1946. And so he legitimately could claim to be a veteran of, of, of World War II. But nobody had ever vetted the guy. And he was the one that gave us the Del Rio crash information. And uh, as I was working on crash when UFOs fall from the sky, I was looking back into this case because I published it in a, a, an earlier book I'd done about UFO crashes. And everybody believed him because he was a colonel, had an affidavit. Mm-hmm. But it turned out that he uh, had been in the Army, not the Air Force. The other thing that I noticed, uh, I found his FAA pilot's license. He was a private pilot. I know of no military pilot who's ever gone through the process of getting a FAA license who only got a private pilot's license. We all got commercial licenses, and all we had to do was take a 50-question test on FAA regulations. They figured if you could establish that you'd been a military pilot and you had the requisite 200 hours of flight time, and when I went in to apply for mine, I had like uh, 1,500 hours, of which 1,200 was combat flight time, didn't question that, presented my records. Spent 30 minutes taking the test, got a 75 on it, not a really high score, but who cares? I passed. Um, so every pilot I know, er, there's no reason for a military pilot to have only gotten a private pilot's license. Ergo, he was not a military pilot. Uh, the only pictures we have is of him is in a Civil Air Patrol uniform. Civil Air Patrol is a wonderful organization. Uh, it's an auxiliary of the Air Force. They provide valuable search and rescue efforts and um, have an organization for training youngsters in aviation and getting them interested in a career in the Air Force. But when Davis said he believed he was talking about the Del Rio crash being real, I knew it wasn't because there's only one source. It was Roger Will- Robert Willingham, and he provided no evidence. And he changed the story like five times from the date to the air kind of aircraft he was flying and all these sorts of things. So at that point, I, I realized the story wasn't true. So I, I, I posted that on my blog. And then somebody, as I said, put the note up about uh, your theory. And he thought he thought it contradicted my theory. And I said, no, I'm just saying Eric Davis is not telling the truth about this. You were providing a 
interesting alternative of why these notes had surfaced. Right. And and to go to, to Dr. Eric Davis, if you don't mind me adding this, uh, and I do want to preface my point here by saying I have reached out to Dr. Davis multiple times. I know I mentioned it about the Wilson documents, but even reached out to him to try and get an interview because he has a history of saying and posting both in, in lectures, it sounds like. I think you said that that was a lecture that he said that uh, Del Rio crash, uh, but also posting on line uh, and social media. He's active in UFO groups and so on. He has a history of posting erroneous information, provable, not a difference of opinion. It's not John Greenwald being a meanie. Uh, it's stuff that he is posting that is wrong. Uh, and I'll specifically hone in on Freedom of Information Act stuff that he was indirectly taking shots at me and saying that I would never find anything nor anybody uh, through the Freedom of Information Act when it comes to ATIP because classified information remains classified for 25 years and it will not be reviewed prior to that. That is 100% verifiably false. And I had responded very respectfully and said that is not true. And he's posting it in public. This wasn't like a private exchange or anything. And why I get passionate about that is although the FOIA is... Uh, definitely comes with its shortcomings. It works to a point, uh, but it works. You can get information. I have more than 2 million examples that I can show you that you can get information. And so for, for people to post it, whether it's Dr. Eric Davis or anybody, what, somebody to post that, uh, that information that's so wrong, uh, it makes me a little bit passionate uh, simply because I don't want the public to start hearing this going, oh, well, that so that's how it is. Oh, okay, so I'm gonna believe everything because we'll not know for 25 years anyway. Uh, again, just all verifiably false. So it comes to no surprise with me that he's out there talking about other things that are verifiably false, uh, and that's his MO. So to go back to the notes, let's say he did write them, how do we believe them? W one thing that I didn't point out yet was inside those notes, he had a interjection point, like one character interrupting the other. And I pointed that out in the, in the video I created. Nobody really writes notes like that. I mean, I'm, I'm open to be proven wrong, but he actually had like an, like a one character interrupt the other. And it just did it to me, it looked like that movie screen. It looked fiction, uh, fictionalized. And so it, it was, uh, when you first told me about the Del Rio crash and that's what he was talking about again, no surprise on my end because Sadly, there is a history of him posting misinformation, and my intent with responding to it was simply to say, hey, maybe you have the best intention here uh, and you really think you're right, but don't take my word for it. And I cited publications and even documents that I've received where at the bottom it says, you know, not to be released before 2035 or 2040. That's just if nobody goes after it under FOIA or a mandatory declassification review. If you do, the law states it needs to be reviewed. Doesn't mean it's released, but it means it's reviewed. And uh, he really didn't care. He really had zero interest whatsoever uh, in the evidence, and he continued with his, uh, with his narrative. Well, I can talk about that from the other end as an intelligence officer who is responsible for that sort of thing, but I'll have to wait for just a moment to do that. I'm here with John Greenwald. John, what's your latest book? Uh, it is Secrets 
from the Black Vault. Okay. I will be back with John Greenwald. We will finish up with Eric Davis and uh, our discussion on UFOs right after this. So please stick around. is John Greenwald. We're talking about uh, Dr. Eric Davis. Uh, John is the proprietor, the host, the owner of The Black Vault. You can find it at www.theblackvault.com with his literally millions of pages of UFO-related documents. When we went away, we were kind of talking a little bit about the process of declassification and how long things remain classified and that sort of thing. And I know I worked on it uh, from the military end as an intelligence officer in both the Army and the Air Force. And uh, you would see documents stamped secret declassify at three-year intervals, which means after three years, that document automatically became confidential. And three years after that, it became unclassified. There was a a period of time for its declassification. Top secret uh, was a little bit different. You had to review it before it was declassified, although they could they could specify a period of time when it would no longer be of importance. Uh, classifications were based on how much damage the document could do to uh, the security of the United States. And so it's that sort of thing that was going on. But to suggest that you cannot get something through FOIA, we learned about moon dust through FOIA, Robert Todd had queried the State Department on a number of UFO-related matters through FOIA, and they inadvertently sent him a lot of documents labeled moon dust, and that was how we learned that moon dust had a that moon dust existed and had a UFO component. So that you know that's real problematic. But as I say, the 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 problem I ran into is someone who was in as far inside as he supposedly was should have known the truth about Del Rio. Um, and or about or about the basic fundamentals of classified information, like yourself. You know, I mean, I've 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 lived this stuff for decades, but you actually know it because that was your job. You you did that. I don't. I I learned it from the sidelines. But he touts that he's got his security clearances and so on. I would think that he wouldn't be disseminating that information. Not only the Del Rio erroneous stuff, but about you know, classified information as well. Like, why wouldn't he have that knowledge? And that always confused me. And and uh, and, I, and I'm not sure what the right answer is. Well, I will say one other thing. I also had a security clearance when I worked in industry at uh, what I called Crockful International, Rockwell International. And I noticed that the training for those of us who supposedly were using, dealing with the classified material just wasn't the same as what we got in the military. They just did not have the same respect for the classifications or how these things worked from the industrial side of the house. And I was always a little bit uh, appalled by that. For example, we just we were working with some classified some secret documents, and they locked them into a credenza, one of those old uh, metal credenzas that you could open with a can opener, which was not a suitable container for 
material classified that at that level, but they didn't seem to care or understand when I said, you know, you've got to put this in a safe. You can't have it laying in a locked desk door type thing. So, you know, I under I understand that that he may not have been fully aware of the way these things work based on the fact that he was coming at it from the civilian side of the house. Which is which is a fair point. And and that's where I'm just this advocate for knowing this is going to sound awful. But knowing your place, you know, knowing your place, like I if you were to ask me something that I don't know, I'm not going to make it up as I go. I mean, that's just not my style. And I, I was doing an interview a few nights ago and something came up and I said, you know, to be honest with you, I have no idea. You know, why can't we have people that do that? But instead, I in my opinion, and I'm not just picking on Dr. Davis here, uh, but more so those that are involved in a lot of this controversy, I think they like the attention. I think they like the fact that people don't fact check them. And sadly, a lot of people don't. So they'll just throw anything out there and then whatever, you know, sticks to however many people. Great. And uh, and that's what I feel is kind of a shame about the whole thing. Well, as I said, I was interested in your take on it being more of a script than an interview with uh, Admiral Wilson. And I will point out once again that Admiral Wilson denied this ever happened. This did not take place. He did not say these things. Yeah. And as, as you mentioned, that seems to be, well, it, then it's true because he's denying it. Um, and I, I've worked with a number of people at the upper ends. Uh, General Crookshank comes to mind. He was at one time the head of ATEC, the Air Te Technical Intelligence Center, the Foreign Technology Division, to be precise, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And I talked to him one time. And what he said to me was, I don't know who you are. I don't know what's classified, still classified, and what's not. And I'm not going to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we didn't get anywhere in our conversation. But the point simply is people who rise to that level to flag rank, as it's as it's known, are very cautious about what they say and who they say it to. And I had a very hard time believing that Admiral Wilson would be talking that freely to somebody about this sort of uh, material. Yeah. And and I, I, I think you're we're coming up to the end of the show, but I'll say this really quickly because you nailed it right there. And And even though, you know, I have this fun working theory about a fictionalized script and so on. The common sense way to look at it is let's just say Admiral Wilson looked into a special access program and let's just say it existed and let's just say it dealt with aliens and let's just say all of that was true. It would be one of the more highly classified uh, programs that existed. The mere knowledge that it existed would in of itself be a classified nature. It's like the F-117 stealth fighter before it was acknowledged. You may not have been able to draw the blueprints, but you couldn't go around talking about the F-117 stealth uh, because again, that mere existence was classified. And so I just don't see that someone of Admiral Wilson's level would go to a car in Las Vegas, talk to someone like Dr. Eric Davis, and start spilling the beans about the the classified nature of the special access program. And then on top of that, start whining how he didn't have access to it. I just don't see any of that playing out in reality. On a big screen or small screen, yeah, I could see that. I could see someone put together a scene like that to make it, you know, sound uh, sound interesting and pull in Roswell and MJ-12 and alien bodies and crash retrievals all of which are in the Wilson notes, throw it all in there into that scene. And you have this kind of, uh, you know, 
dark alley kind of meeting, deep throat kind of thing uh, going on in in Las Vegas. Uh, fictionalized, I can buy it. But but Admiral Wilson actually doing that, I just I just don't see it at all. Well, that's one of the problems I have with some of the Hollywood productions is they do not understand the military protocols mm-hmm. and seem to have no desire to learn the military protocols. And they do things that are just really dumb. And and, and the one thing I, I think of immediately is in the Project Blue Book on the History Channel, Mimi Hynek walks into the offices of Project Blue Book. They don't bother to stop her. She walks back back into it. I cannot see any situation in which a civilian, even the wife of Jalen Hynek, who was their consultant, would be able to do that. They, She would not have gotten past the secretary or the receptionist. Um, she would not have gotten in there unless Alan took her in there himself. And he, I think he'd be very reluctant to do something like that. I, I think that that plays a role in the belief in the Wilson documents, these fictionalized accounts that if it's on TV, it has to be real. And they translate that has to happen and and has to be real in Project Blue Book. So therefore, Admiral Wilson definitely would have sat in the car and talked to 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 uh, you know Eric Davis because uh, again, I think it it just kind of um, it blurs that line from what would have actually happened versus what we want to believe may have happened. And it's something I call the "I want to believe" syndrome. They sacrifice all that logic and common sense way to look at it and exchange it for the blind belief that this happened. And I go back to that fictionalized script theory. That's a very plausible explanation. I'm not gonna bet my house on it, but that's a very plausible explanation. But to see people's reaction to that, and they go, no, John, John's crazy. No, There's no way that this was a movie script. Well, the alternative is a lot more crazy, but to them, it's perfectly acceptable. It's perfectly acceptable to say that a military man like Thomas Wilson is nothing but a liar when he denies that it happened. And they fall back on, well, it's really classified, so he that's what he would say. And we can't operate that way. You know, <laughs> ufology doesn't have the respect to start throwing around an accusation against a former J2 saying, uh, I know you were in the backseat of that car, you liar. You know, you can't do that. But to accept the notes... You have to make a case that Admiral Wilson is a liar. And I'm not going to try and make that case because I don't believe he is. Uh, But sadly, that's what some people uh, believe. And uh, I haven't seen any credible evidence at the end of the day that proves any of this is legit. Well, John, we've run out of time for today's show. And I say today's show because next week my guest will be John Greenwald. And we will be talking about the ATIP program and some other aspects of classified um, UFO programs and what we can learn about that. We planned it out this way so that you know it's just not a mistake. We've we've planned it this way uh, for the last couple of weeks. Uh, John's book, you said your latest book is? Secrets from the Black Vault just came out uh, in April. It's all about declassified documents that literally rewrote history. And uh, his website, of course, is www.theblackvault.com. I will have additional information up and some links to other uh, of my postings and other sites that might give you some information about uh, Eric Davis and Thomas uh, Wilson and about this sort of thing on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogs. We'll try that again. www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Got tripped up in my own syntax there. What can I tell you? 
Uh, and as I say, next week I'll be joined by John Greenwald, and we will be talking about the EdTip program, and I will have other information available uh, at that time as well. So uh, you've been listening to a different perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network. Um, keep listening at xzbn.net, or as they say in Canada, xzbn.net. Thanks for tuning in.